We all want happy, healthy families, and that quest for good health begins at birth. Sadly, many of our nation's infants have a much more difficult journey reaching their first birthday than other infants. African-American babies, for instance, are as much as two and a half times less likely to reach their first birthday than Caucasian babies. This disturbing disparity has given rise to a national forum, a forum wherein healthcare professionals, birth workers, policymakers, and family planning experts share information and ideas to combat the scourge of black infant mortality and maternal morbidity. Welcome to the Gap Podcast Series. Chicago, Chicago. DuSable, Kelly, Daly, Harold Washington, Ernie Banks, George Hallis, Michael Jordan, the city of big shoulders. Chicago, my kind of town. Today we're in for a real treat on the Gap Podcast Series. We're going to spend the next half hour with Pastor Phil Jackson. Pastor Jackson is the leader of the Firehouse Community Arts Center of Chicago that's in the North Lawndale community there in Chicago. And his organization is involved in engaging youth and young adults, helping them to reach their full potential. And he's also the pastor of the Lawndale Community Church and the House Covenant Church, you know, both of Chicago. So, Pastor Phil, welcome to the Gap Podcast Series. How are you doing today? What is the weather? Is this one of the only uh, good days of weather in Chicago this spring? Or tell me what's happening up there today. You know, it is a cold day today. Projection tomorrow is supposed to be warmer on Saturday and Sunday and then maybe cold on Monday. It's, it's typical, you know, schizophrenic uh, Chicago weather, man. <laughs> man. You mean nothing really beachable, a consistent beachable until like um, July. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So you'll get this back and forth until that time, man. It's crazy. Well, I have a, a little bit of a connection with Chicago weather. My mother, for years, lived on uh, 86th in Ashland, and uh, she was a, a chef at the Holiday Inn Mart Plaza down on the Chicago River. And I would typically visit her uh, once in the summer and uh, and once in the not summer. Uh, I'd come out from Los Angeles, where I live, lived out there with, with my dad. And the first time I experienced winter in Chicago, I thought to myself, how, how do any human beings survive this? It was like, I'm like, is it like this in the Arctic? I mean, this is crazy how cold it gets in the winter in Chicago. It does. I mean, it's not, it's not so much even the the snow that people may be familiar with, but it is the wind and the bitterness of that chill that really gets you. You know what I'm saying? So, as much as there's like some similarities to some folks in the Midwest with weather or even the East Coast, yo, it's that middle of the country breeze <laughs> that, that um, make it really not catch your feet. You got to get a Chicago coat when you come visit Chicago. You can't bring that coat from home. You got to bring something from brand new. You come here. <laughs> well, I'm I'm here to tell you, man. I you know I showed up with my uh, my Los Angeles attire and the first thing that she did was uh take me somewhere to get some real get a real coat because i didn't have anything that was gonna you know gonna prepare me for chicago weather and it's yeah i admire um i admire people who 
but I guess anything else, you know, you just learn to learn to roll with it because here in Texas, there's a propensity this time of year for tornadoes. There's literally a tornado watch or tornado warning every second day here in the Fort Worth mm-hmm. Dallas area. So I guess it's just a matter of, you know, getting used to. Okay. So the first thing really that I want to just kind of get into today with you, Pastor Phil, is give our listeners a flavor for the Fireside Community Arts Center. What is your organization about? What's his reason for existence? What's your vision and mission for it, sir? Well, the mission for the firehouse is to interrupt the cycle of violence in the life of youth and young adults through the power of the arts and faith. I mean, our vision is that, uh, you know, oftentimes it's broader than that. And that is to, uh, that, that North Lawndale would set an example amongst the communities in Chicago of prosperity, safety, and holistic shalom. And, and in that, um, that, that encompasses our, <clears throat> our work with violence, but it is um, a, a bigger uh, scope, right, where there is more systemic moves to create that holistic shalom uh, on our vision uh, part of it. But, yeah, that's our, that's our, our, our work. And, and, you know, it's done through our <clears throat> street outreach advocates who, who hit the block and work with guys in the neighborhood to be able to shake them up to really um, see that another way is possible. And if they begin to bite onto that, then they move to getting these guys plugged into our programmatic work, which uh, then it is around um, eight or nine months of just uh, a, a life cycle change. Like, how is it that you we can help you think differently and live differently and give you practice at living differently? And then from there, you're able to really uh, step into a new way of living, right? And so you gotta you got to do that with uh, several folks <laughs> walking with you so you can step into your own Tell us about the the North Lawndale community. Give us a a snapshot, really, that really describes the essence of that community. What is it? What is it really like? What's unique about it? And what's what's special about it? Take us take us there, Pastor. You know, North Lawndale is a community that is 150 years old, and it started, or really was kind of like <laughs> created through Jewish folks who were leaving Russia and wanting a place to live in Chicago, but there were no synagogues here. And so they sent money to Russian families that lived here, and Russian Jewish families that lived here, and they built 12 Jewish synagogues, Russian Jewish synagogues. And they did that um, because in the Jewish culture that during uh, you know Sabbath, you you had to uh, you know you, you couldn't eat or shop uh, within a three mile radius from where the synagogue was, or so many mile radius, and so they had to have different synagogues in areas where uh, uh, devout Jews were were wanting to stay true to that uh, principle. And from all of that, though, there was one hundred seven thousand people who were in Lawndale at one particular time. But as folks migrated from the south to the north, more African Americans lived in, in, in Lawndale and. They were buying homes, and there was a there's a great book called Family Properties about a man, Jewish guy, who was selling homes to residents in selling homes to people who wanted to live in Lawndale. And then he would come to the Jewish family next door and say, "Hey, you know, a black family just moved next door. You know, I don't know if you're 
no, if you, you know, if you want to stay here because your property value is going to go down. And they would continue to do that until all the folks had moved out. And, and, and then they would buy the entire block and sell it to black folks. And they call them blockbuster sales. And so some other Jewish folks, uh, this book is written about a young woman's father who uh, went back to school to get his uh, like real estate law degree to actually go against his own people who were in this whole movement of this injustice with housing. And so <clears throat> the... Um, book centers around people who would even lose their house and they'll find out if there was one payment missed or they were late on one payment and how they would then resell it and things like that. So Lawndale was even, um, like all communities in the, in the 60s when the riots kicked in, was detriment, you know, decimated with folks rioting and, and the, the whole black community part of areas in, in, in all over the country that were, they were the main ones that were being torn, torn apart. And what happened was, from all of that economically disadvantaged stuff and disinvestment, uh, holistically, educationally, safety-wise, you know, folks just started coming in uh, to take advantage of that. There was even a book written about Londell called The Millstone, um, America's Permanent Underclass, what the Chicago Tribune called Londell. And, um, you know, from that type of stuff comes people who are not as committed to invest in Londell, to bring a Home Depot in Londell, to look at stores in Londale, various things like that. So it's a, right now, from all of that, it's still ripples effect from those times in the 80s. I mean, there's now about maybe 32,000 people in North Londale. Um, there are one grocery store. We have one bank, or there will be two banks uh, pretty soon. You know, 41% poverty rate. There is, you know, um, average median income. is poverty level family of four is $24,000, you know, and so... There's a lot of things, and 80% of the folks who come out of Cook County Jail with a background that causes them to be, uh, you know, more challenged to be employed, move back to neighborhoods like Lawndale or, or Humble Park or Inglewood. And so it creates a perpetual cycle at, at, of times of not only just crime, but uh, violence, as well as lack of opportunity and, and, and condition hopelessness that continues perpetually. But the real, real deal is that Lawndale is resilient. People in North Lawndale are the bomb. They have gone through, fought through, pressed through the challenges they face and all the things I just mentioned, but yet have a strength about them and a joy that um, has brought about the tenacity of hope and change. And so Lawndale Community Church, where um, I, I once served as youth pastor and associate pastor, and now just senior pastor of the House Church, that was also supported and planted by Lawndale, has a medical clinic. They have seven medical clinics, 800 staff in the clinic, about 100-something doctors. They have a housing ministry. They're building 1,000 homes in North Lawndale, which they built 200 before, and they've got 400 rental units. And there's a Lawndale Christian Legal Center. There's a Hope House Men's Recovery Home. You know, there's a farm on Ogden that a lot of us supported that grow great green food <laughs> for folks who know all about it, right? Right. And uh, there's unique ever. Dr. King lived in Lawndale in, in 68, and there was um, 66, I believe, but there was uh, his, his attention around poor housing conditions and all of that kind of stuff's created. Um, it's created just sort of a not, a, not a full Harlem Renaissance, <laughs> but a movement to affirm the people who are in Lawndale uh, to revalue the community and to bring resources in that they can have a quality of life plan that complements and represents what Lawndale and Lawndaleans uh, wanted to wanted to be like, you know? Man, that's a, that's an incredible description. Uh, I, I, there's just so many 
so many things that I want to just just delve into about about what you just said. Uh, the the first thing that I want to get to, Pastor, is you chose the name Community Arts Center, and how are you using the arts to facilitate moving folks out of the perpetual cycle of hopelessness to have a what it sounds like is a, a shift in paradigm, a reframing of consciousness, if you will, about what's possible. How are you using the arts to to facilitate that leveraged change? You know, our work in the arts, let's <clears throat> see the, the word art is art as redemptive transformation, is to inject that gift of the art in the schools that bridge connection with us here, you know, at the firehouse and see in the uh, in the movement of uh, young people engaged in the arts as a tool for their own voice to find their own voice to to the courage to you know step into places that would be normally a place they wouldn't step into because of maybe having passed you know challenges uh, before but the arts is so so neutral it's not like if you play basketball you have to have some kind of skill you know to like I'm going to dribble this ball. You can't be intimidated by not having the skill until it gets until it gets better. So, in the context of the arts, you know, we've had a young woman, you know, to to come and to paint. She's been with us eight or nine years, well, eight, no, 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 seven years, and so all through middle school, high school, and she would come every day. About high school, though, she uh, was homeless, and I didn't know that until like her senior year. But she'd been with us like sixteen hours a week during the during the uh, summer and. And then, um, I mean, 20 hours a week in the summer, and then um, eight, eight to 10 hours a week in the school year. I mean, she was with us every day, and then I found out that she was homeless through her applying for a job somewhere. And, man, when I talked to her about it, there was challenges with family and other issues that she faced. But she's now an EMT. I mean, her coming here every day created a community. They gave her affirmation to trust in herself in spite of being homeless, in spite of not having a consistent place to stay every day or every week. So the arts in her world, being here 20 hours a week in the summer for four years, for four or five years, and, and then in the school year as well, it was a space where she was able to trust in her own abilities. And I believe in that creating a cover level for her to dive into being an EMT, because knowing, uh, you know, some situations that happen with young people, it's like, this is the best it's going to get. I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to push it for anything, anything more. And so, uh, and there's been several stories like that. We got a young man named Anthony Bush who engaged in a mural art project that we did. We got all these murals that we did in the neighborhood, and um, that ended up now getting an undergrad at Morgan State in Maryland. We got him in the college over there, and now he was working with the late Senator Elijah Cummings, and now he's a, some senior legislative aide just got his MBA. But this is the quality and power in each of the young people we see. And that's why I say, you know, the, the people in North Lawndale are so powerful and the resilience of the community and the residents of North Lawndale, <clears throat> in spite of all the things. But when there is an opportunity, such as we're seeking to pursue in the arts, here comes now the full flavor of their swag, of their pursuing political aspirations, business aspirations, medical health issues, uh, aspirations, community uh, coordinating deals, and whether it's a protest or whether it's job fair. There is um, just a needed space as we look to have in the firehouse where the fog can be moved, the arts can be a space to stretch your courage and belief in yourself, 
and then you test that outside of this area and see that it's still true even though you're not uh, at the firehouse. And, 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 and using the arts for that holistic healing and holistic transformation, we tell people all the time, you know, nobody needs permission to shoot anybody, wild out, smoke weed, skip class, but they need permission to be great. And oftentimes the arts, what we've seen, give you that permission. You danced, you rocked it out, you, you were the MC school, you were spitting, you know, you made some beats, you cooked some great food, you, you read a website or an app, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, my capacity is huge. What else can I do? And this is the person we've always seen. This is just an outgrowth of who you really are on the inside. So that's sort of a kind of a roundabout way of what and how we see and engage the arts for that holistic shalom. Wow. One of the things that just struck me while while you were talking, it brought to mind an experience that my son and I had uh, about five years ago. And uh, my son is a former college basketball coach, and he now has a basketball academy. And, you know, we have been working with, through his academy, have been working with a lot of suburban kids. And, mm-hmm. you know, and we decided that it was time to go and work with some inner city kids, you know, because I, you know, I'm from South Central Los Angeles. You know, I grew up 83rd and Hoover, which is, you know, kind of the, the, the core of what, of what South Los Angeles, uh, was. So that was my reality. And so I have tremendous heart for kids that are growing up that way because those kids were me. That was, that was my reality. And we decided to go and work with a group of kids from a, a community in East Fort Worth here in Texas. It's called the Stop Six Community. And in the way that you described in your intro about North Lawndale there, there's some, uh, there's some actual similarities between the Stop Six Community and, and between North, North Lawndale in terms of the the emotional landscape and zeitgeist of the folks who live there. But the thing that kind of struck me and it resonated when you were talking is that we spent a spring and a summer, you know, coaching. It was a girls team, 14U. And we spent a spring and a summer teaching them, coaching them, working with them, playing tournaments, but just really helping them understand how, you know, basketball has a amazing way to, to transform your life in so many ways because the game just has a tendency to do that. But the point of the story that resonated with what you were saying is that in spending a spring and summer with these 14-year-old black girls, the thing that struck me about them was that nowhere in their school life or in their neighborhood life was anyone expecting them to be anything other than mediocre. Nobody was demanding excellence for them. Nobody was pushing them toward a greater opportunity than what they saw in front of them. And I just walked away thinking, walked away from that spring and summer, thinking that if there's any gift that we have to give our teenagers is the gift of broadened possibility and heightened opportunity, that there's more in you than even you think is in you to achieve and to do something greater. And those aren't just platitudes. And it sounds to me like that is a big part of what you folks are doing at 
the Firehouse Community Arts Center. Yeah, yeah. Basically, that nobody rises to low expectations. If you're in a cycle where you didn't know there was even expectations, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you just you figure you're doing the best you can, and there is um, that reality that there's so much more in you, but those around you, or just the community that you serve in, are not expecting that. Then you just kind of fall suit and think, "Man, I'm throwing down," right. you know. And um, and yet there is, uh, yeah, just just that uh, that need to to model that. You know, we always say you can't see it, you can't be it. You know, right. and having that 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 it's it's attainable. You know. Yeah, that's very true. If you can't see it, if somebody can't provide you with a a visual frame, it's it is difficult. Particularly if you don't come from an, an environment where where you can just draw an inner image of what it should be like. You, you do need someone to, you need others around you to provide envelopes of support. Uh, Pastor, I, I want to ask you now to comment about, let's just be honest, we've had a tough 12, 14, 18 months in our nation. And kind of given the, the pandemic and the related deaths and really just the profound adverse impact that the pandemic has had on all of our lives. What's the kind of emotional trauma that you're seeing at the church and at the community at Firehouse? What's the kind of emotional trauma that you're seeing in the young people? What are you, what are you observing? You know, it's interesting. There is a level of frustration about what's not available, uh, what hasn't been available by way of typical things that folks would want to do, but the challenge of parents, you know, uh, to do something with their children, be creatively engaged with them. I mean, this is not uncommon just for in the city, but parents overall, but when you have, you know, folks who are already on the margins and disenfranchised, there's always this other weight that's there, right? And so it just accelerated that, that accelerated. If you you already had lack before COVID, then you got even more lack, (laughs) You know, with COVID, and, 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 and then that becomes more exposed because you're seeing it every day versus it being kind of hidden because people can be busy or hustle. Just the tension that um, nobody was, nobody prepared for of, of being in a room in a house. There is no room for you anyway to be in, and now you're in it for all day, you know, and so it creates this, uh, I've never been in this space. You know, I'm frustrated in this space, and I don't know even what to do in this space. And so what happens in Mondial, nobody was listening. This is a, this is a white person's disease. This is older white people's disease or virus or whatever. And so we had more murders in 2020, you know, with COVID, with the shelter in place, with stuff being shut down, you know, than we had in 2019. It was around 800 murders, right? And so folks were like, younger guys, I'm, I'm coming outside. So I'm not going to allow whatever's going on mentally, whatever's going on with me in this, in this space, um, to be hindering me from being outside and, and forget what they say you can or can't do. So you've seen that, and I think that caused other people to see the, the various uh, people that they may have been looking for, had tension with. We're now, you know, trying to find those folks and to shoot them, you know, and, and some did, and... Some got randomly shot. I think last year was even a higher murder rate with children, like 
12 year olds, seven year olds, you know, um, getting shot. And I just created this whole tension of, of if, if outreach advocates are not considered essential workers and they can't come out while people are out here shooting everybody, that there is this, uh, this other kind of thing that nobody's outside trying to advocate. So all these kind of nuances with that. I mean, I think the stresses on you know, local businesses created some, some challenges so the folks could not go to where they would normally go for their own maybe peace of mind, whether it was a breakfast joint or whether it was a even a little bar or whether it was a you know, grocery store or you know, even traveling to things back forth. So it just created, you know, there's a great book called Divided by Faith, and they talk about when, like, when white America catches pneumonia, when it catches, catches a cold, black America catches pneumonia, right? Right. And so this whole increase of what sort of hidden away by everything else going on in the world around the disparity in health with uh, African Americans and Latinos um, became more obvious around COVID and became more dominant as folks were getting sicker and, and other challenges were happening, as well as just the day-to-day living around a virus or how do you navigate life around a virus when it's 15 million You know, we were preparing food for 250 families a week, fully cooked lunches and dinners uh, that we were bringing for six days. And folks were grateful uh, for that because they lost their jobs and they cut the hours got cut back. People lost an apartment, so they had to move in with other family members. And so instead of having... 10 that they're having that's been at house, which is a lot already. Now they've got 15, you know, and so just already kind of created more gas on a on an existing flame that was already kind of out of control pertaining to the disparity of healthcare in a situation like that, you know. So there is um, the violence has increased. Parents recognize that I am not an educator. I don't know how to educate my kids in this way. Kids not, you know, doing so well. And then some kids who are even teenagers. Who moms just let them kind of fend for themselves and really check them. They would a lot of them just got out in the middle of the day or whenever and were stealing cars, right? So about carjacking kind of went up. <clears throat> when we looked at kids don't have nothing to do because they're in at home, supposed to be in school, but mom's got to work or something or dad's working or something else is happening. So now it's like I don't really have to be here, and they're not going to count me for skipping school if I tell them my computer didn't work or I can't can't see whatever they're going to give them an excuse to do it because it's a whole new system that hasn't had anything really to give checks and balances to, so folks taking advantage of that and, and we're gone, right? So there's all these kind of nuances that that uh, were already there, but just increased even more so, even with COVID. Wow, that's um, that kind of blows me away that the number of uh, the number of homicides, the number of shootings actually went up during the pandemic because, you know, I, you know I, naively, you know, I would have thought that the the pandemic would have uh, would have kind of driven those numbers down, but wow! And you're saying that they went up, but I guess the pandemic just exacerbated or just laid bare, you know, all the all the issues that are that are were already at work that were creating such tension and tension in the community and tension at home, really. Right, right, and all kind of theories of what and why folks were still outside. Around the things with COVID, it was it was as if it just gave people a chance to to be uh, to have free time. Like, okay, we're going to come in and we're going to forget about the virus because uh, we're, we're bottled up, too bottled up, being outside. It's just one thing after another, man. They really created those um, those challenges that way and created a way that 
folks were able to, in some ways, as important as it might be, find a way to bring some health to their own mental health. You know, though they shouldn't have been out or done whatever, one of these kind of things where I need my mental health better and I need to get up on out of here. And though it's causing challenges uh, back and forth, I'm gonna, um, I'm still gonna do it. And then violence strikes, you know, from there as well. So I think uh, we're, I don't know if we're at the same mark as we were last year, but I know it's not, I know, I know it's increased, but I don't know if it was at the same mark uh, to uh, other people better than me. We know these, I mean, we got the stats as well, but like are projecting the, the movement of it to be on task to decrease or to be the same um, as of last year. So this is even post-riots and post-George Floyd and post-COVID that uh, the numbers seem, you know, are still up, basically. Hmm. Pastor Phil, you, you mentioned that, and I want to make sure I get this right, you mentioned that through the work at the at House Covenant Church and, and the community church that that you guys are sponsoring seven health clinics. Did I hear that correctly? Mondale Christian Community Church that been around since 78, started their first clinic in the 80s, and from there have birthed seven uh, medical clinics. One is inside of Farragut High School, and three are right here in North Lawndale. One is in another community in East Garfield, another one on the south side. As people felt, hey, we want to do a medical clinic in our area, that the current executive director, Bruce Miller, uh, found a way to duplicate that. And um, current patients that they work with, some may have moved, and we have to still catch a bus to come this way if they moved out south or north. And found a partner to uh, connect with, and you know, build a clinic out there. So there's like 800 staff, and that that's been going on now a little over 40 years, I guess, or so. And so there is a uh, a real strong proactive movement um, in the health world with Orlando Christian Health Center. So are these like what's known as FQHCs, federally qualified health centers, or are they just like funded through donations or or through the through the church, I'm just I'm curious as to how you guys are managing this from a fiduciary perspective. And the reason I ask that is because we're actually one of our film projects that we're actually in production on now is a film called it's a documentary piece called "A Deficit of Virtue: Healthcare in America," and we're working with a, a couple of what's called FQHCs, federally qualified health centers here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, who by charter will treat anyone who comes, whether they have insurance, no insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, or you know some sort of a you know Cadillac insurance plan. They don't turn anybody away. So I was wondering if your clinics, you know, they're affiliated with uh, your group, will just treat anyone who comes, regardless of their insurance status. They do. I believe that there's... Um I'm not all in the details of how that happens, but I do know that when COVID was hitting and they were talking about Medicaid, Medicare situations with folks that they were trying to strategize, strategize that with, with the state. But there's federal funds. It's a, you know, it's a $25 million budget. You know, yeah. they are pretty solid. There's, of course, traditional donations and various things like that with grants and funders that they do. And then people pay with the insurance that they have. And people pay on a sliding scale who are working. Um, you know, and I believe that there are other ways in which people who aren't 
able to pay. There's other other ways in which there's being seen by a doctor, medicine, medicine, or things like that that they may need. <clears throat> but the clinic also has resources to sustain their the care for that person. So there used to be when the first got started uh, a way in which folks, if they didn't have a way to pay, they would clean the gym. <clears throat> they would they would work that payment out by cleaning the gym, doing something in such a way of paying for that. Uh, uh, um, but there was a grant or some funding that even supported that. So the person earned because uh, we want to keep uh, the dignity of the of the community and, uh, and the patient to come, not to just feel like, man, I'm so messed up. I, I get a free doctor thing. No, you, you earn a doctor appointment. You just clean the gym up, and that covers your appointment. You know? Wow. Uh, that was something they've done. And at different times, they've gone back and forth. But uh, that was one way in which they were able to keep the dignity of the person and then the grant or whatever was written about it, they were able to sustain some resources with that as well. So it was cool. It was cool. Now, what did you call it? You said um, FG. What is it? The official nomenclature is, the acronym is FQHC, but the, the descriptor is Federally Qualified Health Centers. And there, there are many of them. I mean, they're around the country. There are many here in Texas. And these are health centers, health locations that by charter have to treat anyone, anyone who comes, whether they have insurance or not. And just one of the ones that, that we're using as the, as the jumping off point for our, our, our feature length documentary about kind of the status of healthcare in America. They're located in a South Dallas community, but they're called federally qualified health centers because the federal government will, through HHS, will provide for between like 40 and up to 66% of their funding on an annual basis. So that's why they're referenced as federally qualified health centers. Okay, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot that they uh, do and are connected with. I'm sure there's even a conference they hold called Christian Community Health Centers, CCHF, something like that. Okay. All right. Brings together folks who do similar work and how they can be supported around the country with various, various ways that folks are able to, to be, um, you know, served in, in the healthcare industry, healthcare community. Well, one of the things that we know is true is there is no shalom if you are sick. There is no shalom for you if you have issues of mental health or physical health or anything going on with your body. There is no peace. So, you know, healthcare is a, it's, it's, it's a part of the, it's a part of the collective mission. And it's an aspect, you know, as, as you know, of, of, of social justice, or I believe uh, a Hebrew word that I like to use with uh, with some of my conservative friends is the is the word mishpat, which, as you know, it it speaks to the issue of the broader definitions of how we should view and then meet out justice right. on a on a practical day to day level. So, I um. Uh, just continuing with this healthcare discussion, just for a bit. Uh, I mean, as you know, the focus of our show, of our series, is on um, infant mortality, black infant mortality, and black maternal health. And you know, just one of you know one of our theses from the journey that we've been on, Pastor, is that we have heard OBGYNs, black doulas, black midwives, black sociologists tell us that black men, black males, can assert just really a significant role in the health journey of black moms and also black black babies during the mm-hmm. first year of life. 
and just wanted to really just kind of get your philosophical comment about that. And then also just any thoughts you may have about how as a practical matter that could be laid out as, you know, perhaps maybe something you guys could do in Chicago or something could be done on even a national basis. How can we help black males be more a part of that journey with the moms and the infants? Well, I mean, to me, right, everything happens from the family, right? The family is the nucleus. God started with the family before a church and before even the nation of Israel. And so there is a uh, breakdown, you know, uh, of the family, uh, specifically even the, the black family that's been going on for years. I'm not just giving excuses uh, to anything. It is um, just the almost like a torturous reality of cycles, right? And so you've gotten cycles of from grandpa to dad to uncle that have uh, perpetuated sort of a, even a low expectation of anyone staying around, being around, being involved, being able to have the guidance and that, that support for the children. I mean, being able to support for mom while the baby is an infant to come alongside while the challenges are there, right? And the black infant mortality uh, rate is three point something, you know, in, in the context of, of nationally, but you know, more complications that babies die, you know, baby African-American babies die because, uh, you know, low birth rate, right? And having to, as a father figure from, from, from the beginning to the end, having a value of life. I think the thing we find the most when guys are shooting everybody there's a, there's a devaluing of life. Like, you're nothing to me. You said this about my friend, and so you're nothing to me. So how did that happen? Like, how did a, another human being see that as a normal and natural way uh, to think about another human being? So let alone how that plays into the value they have on a child. It, not that the baby isn't, isn't anything, but it's like, that's not my priority right now, especially I'm talking about specifically with and um, just having a, in my mind, just thinking about a conversation we've had with young cats, right? And uh, being able to create places and spaces where men are able to grow up outside of the cycles that have been normalized for, for them. You know, we, we're working with in some families, you know, three or four generations of sons specifically getting arrested and being in jail for 10 years and 19 years and 17 years and, you know, so, you know, you create a pattern of being arrested and back and forth in trouble at 18 and 19 and your son is two or three, the son's not around to see anybody, you know, yeah. that perpetual piece. Um, and you, but, but you would think, um, oh man, I got a son, I got to pull back here, I got to work. You know, I'm, you know I'm, I grew up with y'all, I mean, I, the value of life again is so important to me. I got to get out of this because I want this son to, to be your I want to be around for my son like my dad wasn't for me. So I'm going to make sure I don't do stuff to get me caught up and stuff. But the value of life doesn't stick long when the the, the identity of who you are is on the streets or whatever the case is, and then you get bumped. And now this kid has grown, now you come out, and now you're trying to rekindle or trying to fire something out. But the kid has got his own legs under him about what they're going to do. you know. And then if, then if the father is, is absent all, all, all the way, then there is, you know, a great mom, and, and oftentimes the moms are tired, and the mom is trying to work, take care of the baby, baby sister, and then the boy is trying to step in his own. And so, so there is, there is a wearing down of, of all that. And so, if from the 
infancy stage. You know, there's not a reality of the value of life. I mean, some of our guys we work with are, are pulled back from stuff in the streets because they got one child. They got a child on the way. And um, there's a connection with the girl that is having the child that is some value to them, whether they're going to keep being together or where they are together, that I've seen to say, I mean, I need to make sure she's good and make sure this is how I'm going to the doctor visits for. Okay, wow, this is the value and quality of life that, you know, you're going to commit to. And maybe that comes from, you know, a wound that nobody was there. I don't think anybody was there in front of when I was just an infant as a father figure. And I don't want that to be with this uh, child that I'm, I'm uh, having right now. I mean, then you got the extreme where folks got 10 kids and they're not even around for, for any of you know, and, and thinking that um, that's the way it is, too. I just know that there is a, it got to be an effort to create families to be restored. That's not necessarily our lane at the firehouse because that's a big chunk. We need a whole other building probably for therapists, everything else for that. But I do know that if you can get the man to me, and I'm not trying to be sexist or uh, anti-feminine at all. I've got one son, two daughters, um, and five grandsons and two, two granddaughters. And so it's like <clears throat> if the man, if the men can be right, meaning that they are affirming to their wives and girlfriend, they're affirming to women in the neighborhood, they're affirming, then you get the block right because it becomes a trust in, in what this man is or you know, is not about. And, and that man is a trustworthy figure, which I then can uh, have him as a model indirectly. My family can see this man going back and forth to work every day. And there's a just a perpetual um, cycle of that. The, the, we always believe the man gets right, the, the, the family can get right, the block can get right, the community and the neighborhood and the hood and the, and the city. But it's always that combination lock to work with each guy to figure out what and where that value is, you know. So with some guys, it's a level of endearment. I'm about to have a child. I need to pull back. I need to make this happen. I need to be more involved. And then you've got, man, I'm embarrassed. I don't have no money. I can't be around. I'm not going to do this. And then, you know, sometimes because of the cycles, even with, with women who've had children and moms have had children, and they may be three or four generations deep too, they're already perhaps getting ready for you not to be around. And so it's like, I'm making it okay now without you and without everything else that's going on and, and all that you bring. So I'd rather you stay out. And, and not come around because uh, I don't have to get my hopes up. And so there, there are arguments on the other side with young guys. Like I'm trying to do something with my son, or I'm trying to get back in his life, and there is this, this wall up because of the hurt or the assumed hurt or the the patterns that haven't shown any kind of stability. So I'm, I'm not going to be around you that way. You know, I mean, I know the clinic uh, when it first started had this was a high infant mortality rate in Orlando, and that had to do with deep research door-to-door about lead paint in the homes, right? And um, they created, created a way in which they got, you know, even construction companies, others, to, to, to go into these homes and repaint them, right? And to take out the, the paint that would be causing these, these problems. It was a high mortality rate in North Lawndale, you know, because of that earlier on. <clears throat> and they've seen some, some things curve uh, from, from that.
the child is going to be in the cycle, and the cycles won't continue because of what's taking place with uh, with the mom and the dad. Well, Pastor, we are coming up on uh, the end of end of our time, and I wanted to kind of get you out on these last uh, two questions, and and really what's been I feel it's just kind of an, an ex- extraordinary dialogue today. I'm interested in knowing for our listeners what is it that keeps you going? What is it that keeps you pushing forward to continue to alter and influence the trajectory of the lives of young people? What keeps you moving forward? Uh, what keeps me going forward is that um, you know every young person that that I've worked with is, is like a kid, like like I was, right? And, and I was trying to be intentional with who they are, what they're about, leading them where they are, to take them where God would have them to be. And nobody was there for me in, in, in that way, you know. Nobody was that intentional to walk with me uh, in, in that in that context. And so, when it comes to just the reality of is this, you know, the next change agent in the neighborhood, next change agent in the city of Chicago. Is this the one, you know, God you put in front of us here who will, will be the great lawyer that will uh, intercede for policy or whatever the case is. And so it is that uh, you know, motivation and that thought that helps us to look at young men and speak life into them in that position. I want to speak into you where I believe you already are as that, as that champion, as that king, as that powerful person so that there's not any thoughts on hearing that you're being judged or, or um, suspect because of your past. And so I think that's what my motivation is. Every young person comes to do, I see myself, and yet that void where nobody was there to say, come on, man, come this way, come that way, kind of had to fend for myself a little bit. There is more motivation, the more young people we touch or connect with to cause that continue to be encouraged. And, of course, all that has already happened. What God has already done in the lives of our young people, who are doing phenomenal, crazy work uh, from making great money, working with ComEd to financial management stuff to politics to coaching basketball. So all of these things that are that are just as uh, evident of, of the past to be that kind of wind beneath our wings uh, into the future with the young cats that we work with now to know that, uh, man, this is just like how I was. I was in that kind of mental state as well. Those are my motivations right there. Should we, as black men, have a glimmer of hope for the future? Hope is what you have within. And I think that you can't look outside and see that hope. I mean, you know, we live in Chicago, so it could be freaking freezing. But I got to have that hope inside of me to know I'm busting through this cold, shoveling this stuff off the way, moving through, because there is a possibility that something fresh, crazy, brand new uh, will happen today because of the hope that I have in me, you know, and the hope that I have uh, in others that once the fall clears from whatever, folks can recognize their own value. And so, yeah, we, we um, are that hope that God would use uh, to make that, make that transition, transformation. Well, I got to tell you, that's an extraordinary way to close. And I just want to thank you. And ah, before before we end this, if our listeners want to contact you or to know more about the work that's being done at, at Firehouse Community Arts Center Chicago, 
I mean, how can they reach you? How can they learn more about the exceptional work that you guys are doing? How can they make donations if they want to do that? Yeah, you can go to our website, which is the fcac.org, the FCAC, the initials of the Firehouse Community Arts Center, the fcac.org, and you can see all the stuff we have going on for the summer, some of the things we've got posted. We've got more stuff coming up, but we also have uh, some history, some video, our theory of changes on there, um, other information about our financial accountability, and just some testimonials of our, of our guys on, on, our, on our media site. We won an Emmy, a Midwest Emmy, uh, with a film called Chicago at the Crossroads, and uh, along with uh, Brian Shortoff, who won uh, five Emmys uh, for it, uh, Midwest Emmys. And uh, you can watch that whole entire one-hour um, documentary on our, on our site. Um, so that's, that's uh, the, the core place to go to, as well as um, you can reach us, uh, at 773-522-FIRE, 773-522-FIRE. And um, reach out, call, if you have other questions or anything else that we can connect you to. Wow, that is great. Well, thank you. Uh, you've spent the hour with Pastor Phil Jackson of the Firehouse Community Arts Center of Chicago, and you're listening to the Gap Podcast Series. Thank you for listening. The Gap Podcast Series is produced by Limeville Entertainment in association with Sagasse Media Group. Also, be sure to visit us online at 365plusone.org. That's 365plusone.org.